Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss the sudden rise of Speed Garage and Two Step in the late 90s London. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll, because I'm joined once again by my co-host Ryan Hartness to continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And this week we're going to be dipping into two chapters. We're going to be finishing up outro with a look at Speed Garage and then go to his chapter Two Steps Beyond, chapter 20, to talk about Two Step and UK Garage. Ryan, the subgenres are getting extremely confusing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can see, especially from, uh, from an outsider, how all of a sudden you've got speed garage, UK garage, baseline, two-step. And from an outsider's point of view, this all kind of seems like a big old muck of one thing. Uh, and you know, you, that, that's the beautiful thing about, about genres is that you can, you can kind of dig down as deep as you want to go and, and, and have different names for the different elements that you like. So you can keep on chasing what you like, or you can just kind of sit back and say, it's all just house music, baby. It's true. It's true. I've been enjoying um quite a bit, especially the speed garage stuff. I thought I thought had a nice uh, a nice step to it, as it were, and the two step and others get fun. But one other question I want to clear up: Is there a relationship between tech step and two step? Is it just the step meaning it doesn't have the four four on the floor rhythm? Yeah, pretty much. Like there's uh, all. I mean, there, there's a, there's a bit of a, of a crossover between jungle drum and bass and, and, and garage that we'll be discussing. And it is quite obvious when you, when you kind of listen to the baseline evolution from, from American garage music to UK garage music, and you can kind of see where the drum and bass guys come in and really gnarl up the, the bass and tech step being a part of drum and bass, therefore kind of has a kind of, kind of all swirls back around into that two-step element of, of UK garage. So it's all kind of in the same kind of family of influence. Well, good. I'm glad you cleared that up because as you know, all roads lead to bro step for me. And, and I was excited when I saw, heard step and tech step, even more excited uh, about this two-step business. So we're getting when, closer. When's the Skrillex chapter? How are we gonna How are we gonna <laughs> shoehorn in your bro step? It's he's it's. I think Reynolds has it in that last chapter that, from the edition that we don't have that he was kind enough to send us. So we will be able to shoehorn in uh, the pinnacle of human civilization, or as some people call it, bro step. But um, <clears throat> anyhow, a little a little light humor there. Um, I do want to do a quote that I found on EDM Wiki. Um, that says a typical two-step drum pattern features beat-skipping kick drums with a shuffled rhythm or the use of triplets applied to other elements of the percussion, creating a, quote, lurching falter funk feel and resulting in a beat distinctly different from that present in other house or techno. Is that a fair enough statement? Yeah, I mean, if you're looking to define uh, garage music, it's that it has those shuffly 16th note triplets it's like a hi-hat sound that, that gives the music this kind of straight it, – it, it'll still have that typically uh, – that 4-4 four, four 
house beat to it, but it's got this really boxy hi-hat shuffle sound that differentiates it from from normal house. And that's basically the the calling card of the UK garage sound, uh, aside from the the rumbling bass. So those are the two elements that I feel are kind of the two distinguishing. Uh, if, if the body was laid out before me, I'd say check check for that. And if you have that, then you're talking UK Garage. Uh, see, as we put it on the table and dispassionately uh, vivisect the poor beast. Um, and Reynolds will have some more uh, ideas about the specific mix and blend. But first, we got to go back to 1997. So we're back in the land of Big Beat when he wrote his original outro chapter to close the first edition of the book. And Speed Garage uh, was one of the things. No, wait, am I getting it confused? Is it too? Now I've got it all in out of order again. It's Speed Garage is is the is the one from '97, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, UK okay. Garage basically starts okay. hitting Ooh. big around 2000. <clears throat> okay. Whew. Good. Good. Okay. So Speed Garage, Reynolds described as a winning combination of the most crowd pleaser elements of house and jungle circle circa 1994 and hardcore rave and he says garage for years the nearest thing to a static entity in the post-rave universe spawned its own distinctively british mutant called speed garage late 96 early 97 a segment of jungle's audience had burned out on dark depressing music he ties this into the end of the uh early mid-90s recession and the sudden boom of the new labor blair era which boy does it have a nasty hangover but there for a minute in the 90s it was fun and he said so one thing that caused this to happen was that jungle clubs whereas techno clubs would have featured a second room playing ambient as the chill out room jungle clubs had long featured garage in their second room and i think the the more African Anglo-African audience is a big factor in that, that the garage had appealed to, to that segment of people, as well as sort of an upper crust uh, middle class white audience that didn't like all this hurly burly rave, but didn't enjoy the sophisticated sounds of garage. So yeah, there's just a complementary uh, element that goes on that naturally happens whenever you're throwing a two two room or three room party or something like that. Most promoters have their bread and butter, and then they 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 kind of have that secondary sound that just complements what they're going for. Brings in like an, an an edge crowd that isn't quite the main crowd but likes both things because obviously you don't want to be like putting together two groups that that have diametrically opposed musical tastes, but uh, Jungle and Garage just kind of work together uh, in separate rooms. And 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 that's interesting, and we'll talk about this, because there was a rivalry between the house garage side and the hardcore side, which hardcore led to Jungle and Drum and Bass. So Reynolds will talk about that in a bit. But then he says that ex-junglists, which is what they call people who make jungle music and listen to it, turned their hand to Garage and created a distinctly British hybrid strain that merged houses slinky panache with jungles rude boy exuberance so rude boy rude yeah much better i i lost a crown so forgive any speech impediment type things today ice storm and i can't get to the dentist until the ice storm breaks um and that's kind of the trooper that i am so the show must go on but um Speed Garage, so much of this stuff started as a dj driven sound and so you had pirate djs remember jungles heavily married to the pirate radio in London. It's happening in the clubs, but it's also happening on the air. And that pirate DJs pitched up American garage imports, especially Todd Edwards and Armin Van Helden, to plus eight on their Technic turntables. And they, um, a lot of those guys uh, 
put out dub cuts with more space and less vocals, MK, Masters at Work, and that allowed space for the London DJs to add the dread bass. And, and then they add the jungle-listic elements, dubwise effects, rewinds, and the Raga MC chatter. And yeah, this is again where there's uh, when it comes to to pirating, pirating being so important, not only just for pirate radio being a, a method of distribution, but pirating us in like actual stealing of, of other music. Those masters at work records with the dub mixes had some of the cleanest, best percussive loops that you could lift off of a record. And garage producers in the UK had no morals or scruples about just taking those loops and then putting crazy bass over it. It was the best and easiest way to have yourself a, you know, uh, a, a, a beat that sounds like it came out of a, a hundred thousand dollar studio. Cause it probably did, uh, along with a real grimy underground UK baseline. So it was a, it's, it's one of those times where again, uh, with without that ingenuity and without the, the willingness of these people to, to just be able to just be willing to just lift something and, and make something new out of the, the composite parts of what's already out there to create something completely new, who knows what we would have. Exactly. And I'm always going to lean air on the side of rooting for new stuff. And if, you know, some eggs get broken making the omelets, that's too bad. Unfortunately, the legal world completely disagrees with me, but that's because they don't love music. Anyway, there's also the Happy Hours Club. And this is one where Reynolds, once again, he's his version is his explanation for this is he's trying to introduce sort of rock fans to this music. So he's he's emphasizing the records and the producers because that's a much more comprehensible thing. But you and I, being veterans of the Brewster and Broughton analysis uh, and School of History, know that this is a DJ-driven music. And so um, Reynolds doesn't talk about the Happy Days After Hours Club at the Elephant and Castle uh, Pub, which was down the road from Ministry of Sound, which is one of these big London mega clubs. And uh, they would have a main room with drum and bass DJs like Mickey Finn, Kenny Ken, and Randall. But then in the back room, DJ Matt Jam Lamont was playing house and speeding it up. So this was a big part of it. And that was not only DJs on the air, but it was also DJs in the clubs. Then he gets into the elements of Speed Garage. And this is a great list. Sultry Divas, Dread Bass, Dancehall Reggae Chants, Hardcore Sped Up Helium Squeaky Vocals, plus filtering effects from French House, a la... Uh, daft punk syncopated highly textured snares with a curiously organic woodblock timbre and i did notice that that does really jump out and he's also saying that it's polyrhythmically perverse riddled with itchy percussive ticks micro breakbeats and quivery synth stabs which made it lascivious not asexual and the drug of choice was cocaine not e if jungle was gangster rave speed garage is gangster house Reynolds can write, eh? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's uh, it, it's important to kind of note that that Speed Garage and UK Garage, uh, to, to, to me, it, it kind of, when you go into the club world and Speed Garage became kind of an after-hour sound, uh, it came, became, because of it being an after-hour sound, it became a bit more of a hard-edged house genre and more of an underground kind of pastiche of all these other genres. And it became this really interesting, unique thing that was willing to steal from, from, from everywhere. I mean, 
UK garage has uh, jungle MCs and jungle bass. While it, it, you can't obviously ignore all of the house uh, influence, like it, it starts out as a house genre, but then takes all this jungle and and uh, drum and bass elements to it. And then on top of that, it, it you throw in just like a like several shovels worth of uh, uh, urban and soul and R and B sounds, and that's where the entire genre really goes mainstream. Is because those are the elements that kind of push it out into the into the world and and take it take it right onto the radios onto the official radio dial and into the charts of the UK. And let's go ahead and hear our first song snippet. Um, we've got C.J. Boland's Sugar is Sweeter, and this is the Armin Van Helden remix from 1996. Tell us uh, why you picked this one. Well, Armin Van Helden is one of the granddaddies of Speed Garage. Uh, this is the baseline that 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 kind of set everything up and got everything moving. So it's a it's an essential one, and it's also great. I love because it confused everybody who later on went and tried to find C.J. Boland, ex expecting more of that. No, you should have looked Armin Van Helden's way. C.J. Boland is pure dark, gritty techno. I see uh, a misdirection, a dreaded swerve, if you will. This is C.J. Boland's "Sugar Is Sweeter" remixed by Armin Van Helden from 1996. C.J. Boland's Sugar is Sweeter remix by Armin Van Helden. And the interesting thing about this is that Speed Garage is, is a genre that had a quick triumph, first on the ground in the, in the London clubs and on the air with Pirate Radio, and then later on as it morphs into UK Garage and Two-Step uh, with the pop charts, which totally dominates around the turn of the millennium. And... Um, he says, most London pirate stations switched from Jungle to Speed Garage in 97. Jungle's populist core immediately withered away. Speed Garage clubs like Absolute Sundays, Num Nums, Num Nums, Twice as Nice, Sun City, and The Powerhouse, and Horny, the delightfully named Horny, um, uh, blew up and, and drew in the fans. Reggae fans who'd gotten into Jungle moved to Garage, but it also drew house fans, which made it immediately more popular than Jungle had ever been. And that genre-defining singles like Rip Groove by Double 99, Gunman by 187 Lockdown, and Oh Boy by the Fabulous Baker Boys uh, were, were making their mark on the pop charts. And then he talks about the irony that in 1992, house and hardcore had been at opposite ends of the post-rave spectrum, bitter enemies, and it, he says initially that made it puzzling as to why there was so much nostalgia for the hardcore era in this scene, because they're doing remixes and covers of songs and tracks from the original 92 hardcore era. But then he points out there's a direct line from hardcore to jungle to speed garage and that. And this is a bit more contentious. So I want to get your take on this. Reynolds says that musically speed garage is a composite. And then he has in parentheses house plus jungle. Whereas Jungle was a mutant, hip-hop times techno. Now, I don't know how you can quantify the plus and the times or that there's necessarily 
distinction involving multiplication between mutants and composites. But what's your take on that? I mean, I, I definitely agree that that Speed Garage is a composite. Uh, I don't know about Jungle being a mutant of hip hop and techno, uh, just because we kind of witnessed Jungle birth itself out of out of hardcore breakbeat. Uh, and so we saw exactly where it came from and, and hip hop really didn't have, uh, uh, hip hop or techno didn't have too much to do with it. We went off the rails on our own down that crazy rave breakbeat spiral and then just pulled, reined ourselves back in and jungle kind of came out of that. So I, I get, I get kind of what he's trying to say, I suppose, but, but yeah, in this case, case, I agree with speed garage as a composite, uh, and maybe jungle being a mutant of, of various things. If you want to boil it down, I don't really, I don't know how much you can give hip hop credit for, for, for jungle. I mean, other than maybe, you know, the, the, the base breakbeat elements, maybe a little bit, but even then not really, I don't know. Yeah, I think what he's talking about is that Jungle's built on breakbeats, which which come out of hip hop, and and you know on other shows I've def I've I've heard people define hip hop as the breakbeat, even though hip hop has long gone beyond the breakbeat. But anyway, if you take the breakbeat, and I think the other thing that made it more hip hoppy was the MC, although that came from the reggae side of things. So that's kind of I don't know. I see I, I kind of see what he's getting at, but I think you're right that he's stretching the point it, it's too much of a simplification it leaves out it leaves out too much maybe uh you know as at a ten thousand feet you can say that and get away with it but we've been rolling around in the muck for like two years now and and that will not stand <laughs> uh, bravely all right so now we get to the so that was 1997 and now we move to the next chapter two steps beyond which he wrote around 2000 and he's talking about things that happened around the turn of the millennium and the chapter is called Two Steps Beyond, talking about the uh, subgenre I called Two Step Garage. Um, he's got the summer of 2000. He went to a club called Twice as Nice. He notices that ball caps and jeans are banned, <clears throat> that the uh, display of designer labels is toned down a little bit from the early Speed Garage days. And then he says it's a bastard child rather than a purist descendant of garage and house. And this is, again, that composite thing. He calls it a mongrel mishmash of influences. And the thing that's added that he – I don't know if he didn't pick up on this in 1997 or if it became more – or if it was truly added in 98 and 99 – and hadn't been present was the influence of Timbaland, the great R&B and hip hop producer, most famous for his work with Missy Elliott, um, but worked with Aaliyah and all kinds of people and really revolutionized R&B and hip hop. And Timbaland's kind of the point at which you can really no longer distinguish R&B and hip hop because he was effortlessly moving back and forth and sometimes could take a track and it could be a hip-hop track if a hip-hop artist decided to use it and an R&B track if an R&B artist decided to use it. And sometimes they'd have a hip-hop rapper and an R&B singer on the same track. So um, pretty exciting thing, and it's it's interesting. I kind of look at it as uh, the rave scene going back to the well of American R&B and, and getting a fresh infusion of those influences. But it's not just that. Um, it's also Jungle's booming bass, House's slinky synth, synth riffs, and dance halls raucous MC Jabber. And remember, when Jungle hit big in 94, it was Ragged Jungle with the MC, and there was one of these dreaded committees of Jungle DJs to disassociate themselves with that kind of thing. So MCs kind of got backgrounded in Jungle, but they come back big in Garage. 
Yeah, and it's uh, it, it's interesting that you bring up the Timbaland style uh, elements and stuff like that. And it definitely was something that that hit bigger closer to 2000. You had a couple of uh, the 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 uh, a couple of like uh, the. I'm trying to remember uh, the names. I don't want to obviously just spout out the wrong names, but the Sosonic crew, they they sampled a couple of Timbaland riffs. And I think it was around this point that uh, UK Garage basically started leaning towards more R&B sound than they before. It was very much coming out of house. Speed Garage was was very garage and house influenced and everything like that. And UK Garage really starts leaning into the R&B sounds. And they get rid of that four to the floor beat, but they keep the two-step percussion and uh, and all that extra room frees it up for a bunch of soulful UK singers to come in uh, and start singing. And then obviously you have uh, Timbaland proving that you can make a really dope dance remix of a, of a really soft, really soft R&B song. So you got like Brandy's The Boy Is Mine, which is, you know, just like a sultry, not much of a mover. But then when you put a beat over it, you start to get it. And so Timbaland really showed how you could take any sultry, soulful R&B track and turn it into a real dance floor banger. And, and from there, it was just off to the races. And let's hear our next track. This is the B-15 project, Girls Like Us. You say it's an example of the commercial UK garage sound. This is 1997, so a little before what we were just talking about. Why'd you pick this track? I mean, uh, Speed Garage is considered one of the first, like, really woman-friendly underground dance music uh, scenes. And this is one of those tracks that was considered a real lady pleaser. So, you know, this is the one of the normally normally if you go soft or anything else like that, producers start looking at you sideways. But there was a because Speed Garage was was a big deal because that's where the women were. You were allowed to make tracks like this that appealed to women which is you know a real rarity in the underground dance scene so i wanted to kind of represent a little bit of that commercial woman forward uh sound that was acceptable for the first time in uk garage all right let's hear it this is the b15 project girls like us That was the B-15 Project's Girls Like Us. And we'll talk more about the, the sexual politics of this in a bit. Reynolds gets into this quite a bit. But first, let's talk about how um, this stuff blew up on the pop charts. After two years of rolling the clubs, suddenly they had the UK pop charts on lockdown. You had artists like Artful Dodger, Sweet Female Attitude, um, that were scoring top 10, number one hits even. But it was it was unusual in that the scene was still driven by the London pirate radio scene and DJs like the dream team of Spoonie, Mikey B and Timmy magic. Uh, they were putting, they started out as pirate radio DJs at London underground FM. Then they moved to kiss 100 from 97 to 2000. Then they were on the BBC from 2000 to 2003. Talk about going legit. And, you know, Mikey B was a guy who came out of that, the breakbeat um, jungle scene. He, he had been with top buzz, the top buzz crew before that. So, these connections are really interesting. This is sort of a moment where multiple streams are divided. It's kind of like a delta where the streams uh, subdivide and then, and then come back together in new combinations. And then 
he talks about how for a minute, for a couple of years, from 1990 on, 1998 on, it felt like UK Garage was the new form of chart pop in exile, biding its time until the inevitable mainstream breakthrough. And then this is where he talks about it. The deference to the, quote, ladies massive, that it met the demand for sing-along choruses, diva vocals, and wind-your-waist rhythms and that, that the ladies wanted. And what had happened with Jungle as it had gotten darker, and particularly when it got into tech step and brought back those sort of GABA and industrial influences, that was kind of a boys' club thing. And the ladies just kept gravitating to that second room in the club where they were playing a garage. And eventually, even the most obtuse dudes, well, there's obviously some subsets of dudes that don't care, but but the cishet dudes noticed the ladies are gone and they'll start going, where are the ladies? And, and let's go over there. And that's what happened. And because this subgenre had amalgam, I mean, really it kind of bridged a great divide between hardcore rave and house music that had been extant since the early 90s. And whenever you have two related but separate genres and you can bring them together that's when you can have things explode it's kind of the way grunge brought together punk and metal in the early 90s and suddenly had something bigger uh than either i think that was the case with with the garage variants yeah and i mean you also have to give garage quote unquote credit uh, in, in that it, it created a bridge for for uptight heterosexual men to to be able to enjoy uh, house music because there was always that uh, there was always that that homosexual uh, anxiety that that people had about house music and disco music and everything else like that that was always keeping them back from being able to really enjoy house music. And all of a sudden, you you can backdoor it by saying you're here and, and you're enjoying the sound because it's for the women, and you're here for the women. So there's obviously nothing gay about that. And it's like, well, this is, I guess, a good thing in a way. But at the same time, it would have been nice if if people had just been able to get over themselves and their and their and, and all their inhibitions and and all of their uptight uh, neuroses and just accepted house music without having to be led there led there by the women like dragging them by the by the nose, you know, <laughs> or something else. But yeah, but and it's not just your white cishet homophobes. It's also the infamously homophobic Jamaican reggae scene that um, bridges are built, and the, and you've got the reggae bass and the and the and the MC Raga, the Raga MCs, and that brought in the, the reggae crowd. And Jungle obviously had brought had brought them over into the EDM circle. So, you know, peace is breaking out. It, that was one of the things about the 90s, you know, the end of the Cold War. For a minute, it looked like China might reform. You might have peace in Israel. Some of these things didn't work out in the long term, but you did um, get a, 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 a detente on the dance floors, as it were. And he talks again about the rapaciously omnivorous style, that you've got the rapid-fire kick drums of the new R&B, in you R&B, which is what he's calling the Timbaland influence stuff, and also the Neptunes and Pharrell and other producers. And also another thing that was going on in hip hop that he doesn't mention was that Outkast was audibly listening to what was going on in the British EDM scene and bringing it into tracks like Bombs Over Baghdad, which is absolutely huge in the States. And so that, that kind of thing feeds on itself. You also had the jungle style micro breakbeats, the house influenced hi-hats and synth vamps, 
Electro's Roland 808 bass boom. We haven't heard a lot about Electro since the mid-80s, but that's going to continue to be a thing into the 2000s. And Reggae's Slinky Skank. How's that for a mix? Yep. And again, you can't really, uh, Speed Garage, UK Garage at its best is, is, is a big miasma of all of those things. And when you have a, a good Speed Garage DJ, when we were doing the pirate radio episode, uh, I was, I was digging through a lot of pirate radio, uh, podcasts and, and, or, or archive shows and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, no lie. Like I'd say like 60, 70% of, of, of underground pirate radio from like 98 to 2002 was speed garage. And there's a lot of garbage out there, but the best stuff, uh, lets the DJ go from, from everything. They will, they will have the house in there. They will have the reggae. They will have the R and B. They, they touch on everything. They go across everything. It's its own new Balearic style. Uh, it's uh, very impressive stuff. And then you hear these other guys that can't get past that Armin van Helden bass beat, and that's all they got to offer. So, you know, if if you think you know Speed Garage uh, and you think it's boring, you just haven't heard the right people yet because there's a lot of stuff that goes on in there, and, and it gets boiled down to its fundamentals sometimes, and that's pretty boring, but there's there's a lot of interesting things going on. Yeah, for sure. I really enjoyed listening to this stuff. And this was also a period in my life when I was about 30 and I was I was going through a divorce. So I was going out to clubs and, and, and dancing again. So maybe it was just a nostalgia for that. But I do think there was something special about this era of music. And then he, he has a little riff based on an old American ad campaign, which tried to sell pork as the other white meat back when there was a whole thing against fat that turned out to be scientifically not based on anything. But anyway, he talks about Timbaland's approach to R&B as the other electronic music and, and that um, it was more radical than anything being done by the most self-consciously arty drum and bass or techno producers. And he, he goes back to kick some of his favorite targets from that scene. And I'm going to spare them uh, the, the, the insults. But um, it is interesting. And he also then brings in Dance Hall, which was the updated 90s version of reggae that was popular in Jamaica and, and had a big moment in the international charts around this time as well. And he calls them the other, other electronic music. So a lot of people have been using these tools and experimenting on parallel paths separated by the Atlantic. And now they're starting to hear each other and, and copy each other's stuff. So it's a really exciting era. And then he calls two-step lover's jungle, drum and bass slowed down to a languorous frenzy, um, which is pretty fun. And I'm not going to let you talk about this because we got to take a sponsor break. And when we come back, we'll talk about this wave of bootleg mixes of US R&B hits. I'm sorry for cutting you off. I know you were dive, ready to dive into the languorous frenzy of Lover's Jungle, but I want to talk about this wave of bootlegs. Um, the Architects remixed Brandy and Monica's the, the Boy Is Mine, and he says it was the hit of London in 1999. The time stretched the vocals um, to make it fix, fit with the, the rhythms. They simulated a sound clash with crowd noises. And then they approached Brandy and Monica's label, who passed on putting out the remix. So they put it out as a white label, which sold 20,000 copies, which is really impressive for a little bootleg white label. It's only coming, you know, available in a few janky uh, stores that'll sell white label stuff. But Pirate Radio was pushing it incessantly. And that still starts this whole trend, like Whitney Houston's It Ain't Right, But It's Okay, spawned about 10 different garage remixes at one point. Um, and then 
you know, as producer Zed Bias said, if they didn't want us to do the remixes, they wouldn't put the acapella on the 12 inch. And this was a period when the music industry, when parts of the music industry were encouraging um, remixes like this. And in the US, they were encouraging people like 50 Cent to put out mixtapes where they would just rap over other people's tracks. And this stuff was being sold uh, in mass quantities in these open air uh, pirate markets in New York. But then other elements of the music industry are about to crack down on it hard. Do you know if there was ever a crackdown on this stuff or did the did the garage producers leapfrog into making their own records and going legit in time to avoid that fate? Well, there was no uh, the, the great this is, this is a win win for the record label because, you know, they can pretend that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. On one hand, they can they can put out, as the producers noted, the 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 the, the, the original vinyl will come with an acapella. Uh, obsten- uh, you know, uh, apparently just so that you can do a little bit of a, of mixing over or something like that, but everybody knows what the acapella is for. And then on the other hand, they've got a legal department. So if you have a, a massive hit, they can step in and say, you, you have to give us this money. You have to give us these rights. So any of these big songs that, that really broke and did, did big business after a certain time would get picked up and either legitimized or sued. And either way, you know, the, the record label will get their pound of flesh. And this was a big industry-wide across all underground music genres. It was it was generally understood. You could make your white label and you could release it. And you better get your money back on the first couple of press runs because either they don't like it and they're going to shut you down or they do like it and they're going to shut you down and take it. And, and, you know, either way, you better take that money and you better hide it and you better burn the records or bur- burn the paper records, not the vinyl records. They'll burn the vinyl records if they really don't like it. Yeah. So it's it's a, a classic heads we win, tails you lose situation uh, on the part of big money. And then he talks about how um, a lot of these producers were playing with what he called vocal science. And, you know, we Jungle was defined by the, the rhythm science and some really complicated stuff going on with how they were mixing these break beats together with their uh, computers. Now they start doing it to vocal samples. Autotune has been around, but it was kind of uh, on the down low for a long time. Came out in the early 90s, was used to do things like make Anthony Kiedis of Red Hot Chili Peppers appear to be able to sing a ballad in, in tune. But Eventually, around this time, people like Cher start using it as a novelty sound and, and to make it sound obviously auto-tuned. And these producers are using it to toy with these vocal samples that they're using. And they're doing micro edits to turn vocals into staccato riffs. And he, he particularly points out Artful Dodger's remix of Craig David's Fill Me In. But then he says by 2000 that people like Artful Dodger are having their own vocals recorded. They're using original vocals. Um, Shanks and Bigfoot's another artist around this time. He uh, he he mentions Wookiee and MC, MJ Cole as the, quote, musical option, which he doesn't like, and 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 gives Wookiee a, a cheap uh, shot or two. Wookiee's an interesting one, because he's the name I had heard associated with grime, but apparently he's more, garage is a more accurate scene to put him in. And it does seem to be a bit of a critical punching bag. Um, uh, then you've got the experimental auteurs like Zed Bias, Des 2, Groove Chronicles, and Steve Gurley. And then the reggae-influenced Master Seps and M-Dubs with their reggae MCs, Creed, PSG, Sparks and Key, and Richie Dan. So um, pretty exciting moment when they just took over the pop charts and went legit. Yeah, I mean, you've got this period of time where where all the UK guys are, are lifting 
you know, not just not just the beats and the sounds from the uh, New York producers, but also taking, you know, U.S. recording artists and doing all the white labels and stuff like that. And then there's that point where either the scene collapses in on itself or the scene says, we're going to we're going to start doing this ourselves exactly the way we want it and put our own country's label on it. UK garage, all of a sudden you've got uh, Daniel Bedingfield, you've got uh, Craig David, you've got Artful Dodger, all these different guys coming out and they've got their own vocalists. We're not relying on any of the US R&B people anymore. And they created a, a really impressive, legitimate scene. Now it was a scene that I didn't pay a lot of attention to because at that point I'm like, ah, sellouts. And I and, and I stopped paying attention to it. It's it's to my own detriment because there's a lot of interesting bass lines going on there and a lot of interesting uh, production stuff going on. So yeah, they, they it, uh, it it turned into its own massive massive thing. Like I'd say that this the entire UK R&B scene kind of exploded outwards out of the speed garage scene, and and because of that had this really kind of cool affiliation with house that the US R&B scene never had or didn't have until uh until until Timbaland brought the dance in and then a bunch of kind of US dance producers also kind of followed suit. Yeah, and and makes for a really interesting period and the other exiles that they bring back to the party are these uh you know Jamaican based uh raga MCs and he says it's a crucial crucial part of UK garage that most of these MCs came via jungle but some came straight out of the dance hall or rap scenes. So once again, it's drawing people in from outside the, the rave scene or the post-rave scene. And, and, it, and they developed a distinctively English form of speed rapping that blended the Jamaican patois and the Cockney accents. And, and that is, this is a really crucial part of hip-hop history because grime is going to kind of come out of this, not quite directly out of this scene, but it, I don't know. I think you could credit uh, you can call the baseline the baseline elements out of it. I, I think. Yeah, I, I think it does create this window from which grime uh, comes through, and grime is really the first time where um, people from the African diaspora who were not from America were able to make a contribution to hip hop that even the American uh, DJs and MCs had to say respect and and pay some attention to it. Whereas, you know, we talked about this in the late 80s and the early 90s, UK hip hop had been roundly dismissed and had to sort of take refuge in the in the in the rave scene because uh, the hip hop scene wanted nothing to do with them. And by this point they developed such a unique an obviously compelling and powerful rapping style that everybody had to pay at least some attention. And they also bring things in like the rewind request, which is a, a total uh, dance hall and reggae thing where the crowd likes something so much that they yell rewind, rewind. And then the MC would tell the DJ, you know, rewind, let's hear that again. And it's interesting. He also talks about how, you know, the MCs had kind of been, had faded from drum and bass as it drifted back towards a relationship with techno and then uh, the Jungle MC reappeared in UK Garage. So uh, pretty interesting. He also talks about a New Horizons, which was a reggae-matic micro-genre of house that came around this time. So um, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. I love this cultural blend stuff, and it's exciting when it, and when it bridges divides between different groups of people. Yeah, and it was so big that there was a lot of interesting stuff kind of coming out of it in all sorts of different directions. And, you know... Um... 
like like many other genres that get that big, sometimes it's kind of uh, it's a, it's the unfortunate side effect that that when the spotlight moves on from it, it seems like the whole thing collapses and 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 maybe maybe a small seed of what what remains is, manages to replant itself and grow again, or the whole thing just disappears. Jungle drum and bass survived when everybody moved when everybody moved on to garage, which became the new hot thing. And Jungle Drum and Bass was, seemed almost relieved by the fact that they got to be left alone to to germinate once again. But uh, Speed Garage, once it once it went full mainstream and it started being top of the charts and it started being top of the pops and everything else like that, I feel like uh, once it got a bit too big and and its reputation for being gangster music started setting in, uh, then then the fall came and it never really recovered. I mean, musically now it's starting to, the influences are starting to pick up and people are starting to reproduce sounds with that UK garage and that speed garage sound. But the scene is, has been, been thoroughly, thoroughly wrecked. Uh, that happens. You rise, you fall. Let's hear our next track. This is Dim 2 with Destiny from 1997. Why'd you pick this one? I just wanted something that was really, really clear in its two-step elements. Like, uh, I think uh, out of all of the correspondence with our fans that we have, uh, the the question of two-step and what two-step is uh, is and what qualifies a two-step as two-step is 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 the most widely bandied around. So I wanted to this here is a this is a track that's very stripped down, and the two-step element is sitting right up front, just so people are like, "What the hell is two-step?" This is the two-step thing. And we'll dedicate this to Rob and Kevin, our devoted correspondents. So this is Dim 2 doing Destiny 1997. Dim2's Destiny from 1997. And then Reynolds gets into kind of this riff on how Two Steps Garage, quote, amalgam of Black Atlantic sounds. And the Black Atlantic is this whole diaspora that was triggered by the slave trade, uh, you know, from the west west coast of Africa, east coast, South America, the Caribbean, the United States, uh, England, uh, a little bit of Europe as well. Um, so he's talking about how it, it's mixing elements of house, dancehall, electro, R&B, jungle, and roots and dub, and it's both, quote, the latest chapter in the hardcore jungle drum and bass continuum and the tradition's self-deconstruction. It's the point where the music reaches out to genres outside the rave and pirate radio narrative, such as R&B and dancehall. And this is really interesting. I think this is something that happens with every genre of music, whether it's Western classical concerto music, you know, uh, or these dance genres. Sometimes there's new technologies and there's new ideas and it becomes popular and draws the attention of these artists and talented people who have a lot of ideas there to play with. And so hardcore kind of had a run. The ideas that came out of this merger, uh, you know, of, of the, the acid house explosion gave people plenty to play with in a self-contained universe for a full decade. But now we're at the point where they need to take these infusions uh, uh, from other elements of, of the Black Atlantic. And so um, 
you know, he riffs on that a bit. And then he makes this interesting point that music becomes post-geographical in the digital world. And we talked about that with Psytrance last time, how everywhere you went in the world, the side DJs, uh, the crowds would already know their tracks. And that's because of the internet. Originally, it was because of dat tapes being physically moved around, but then because of the internet as the 90s move on. And so this is what we're seeing here is, is you know, somebody like Timbaland, who's in Virginia Beach, um, is is and somebody, you know, like the outcast producers who are in Atlanta, they're hearing what's coming out of London. And there's not this lag where Jungle was kind of hidden uh, from the U.S. because it was only on pirate radio and you couldn't get these white labels in the States. But now everything's everywhere. But he says there's a stubborn persistence of the hyper local. And this is an interesting thing we'll talk about as we talk about 21st century music. What do you think of that contrast? I mean, I, I definitely saw it. Um coming up around 2000s, uh, you know, I, I saw the scene as it was hyper-locally, where, where you were just going to the events that you knew about by the flyers in the record store and by listening to the music, hearing the, the, the music that you had access to from the local radio stations and, and at the record store once again, and then all of a sudden having an internet connection and being able to get on and, and having access to the entire world depending on, you know, how, how many hours you are willing to put into downloading, you know, one seven meg file overnight. So, I mean, uh, the, the, the size and, and, and scope of what you could check out once the internet started to happen was so much larger. I mean, I used to get a lot of guff for being one of the few DJs that was playing on CDs because, uh, you know, in my little neck of the woods, you had basically what the shopkeeper at the record store thought was important to import and that was all just really bad house music, as far as I was concerned in my 18-year-old mind. And I, you know, once once you get onto the internet, you can you can go and you can seek out whatever you want and check out whatever whatever is interesting and be on the cutting edge of that, as opposed to being you know three months behind on someone else's schedule because of uh, the realities of of the way that the real world works versus the virtual world. Yeah, I don't think people that grew up in the 21st century can relate to what it was like. Uh, before the internet, like I remember being in Austin in the late 80s and Lubbock, Texas, of all places, was actually hipper to the incipient grunge scene than we were here in Austin because Austin was interested in all kinds of other post-hardcore punk scenes that were going on at the same time and weren't hip to what was coming out of Seattle or not as hip. But things like Nirvana's first album were only available in Lubbock, which, you know, I had to go to Lubbock to get Nirvana's first album because I couldn't get it in Austin. So, yeah, the same thing going on. And one thing I want to go back to, uh, this bit about autotune and the vocal science. This is a thread that has continued to be important throughout 21st century music and all this mumble rap stuff that olds like me complain about is heavily based on autotune science. I just interviewed this kid, Kit McIntosh, about this kid, this young writer, uh, Kit McIntosh, um, about this stuff. So this autotune stuff is going to be important and, and is a continuing source of innovation for the next couple of decades. Oh, the autotune is like the the 303 for for for, for new artists nowadays. There's yeah, endless ways to manipulate things with it. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting stuff, and 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 I love when the kids get their hands on a new toy and just go to town with it, and that seems to be the case with with auto tune. And, and whenever you hear something that all the old people hate and complain about, that's what you look for. Uh, for that might be where the interesting new young stuff is happening. But then Reynolds talks about sort of the social aspects of the UK garage scene, and and once again, this is a scene like jungle, like rave, that it's not just a music scene, it's a way of life. 
and they had record stores like Uptown and Rhythm Division. And this is still most people are getting their music via record stores. Napster hasn't happened yet. And like you said, it was a big download. You hadn't figured out how to do peer-to-peer transfer. So it was a big pain in the ass to move music tracks around. So people were still going and buying the records at the record stores. There were clubs like the Liberty, the Gas Club, Pirate Stations, a new wave of Pirate Stations. He says this is the second golden era of London Pirate Radio. And really, I think probably the third golden era, but he, like most of these writers, didn't like Rare Groove. So he is that whole thing. But hopefully we can backtrack at some point and talk about that 80s uh, scene where pirate radio really got going. Um, and you also had um, closed stores like Probito, Z and Company. You had monthly raves like Exposure. They even had their own uh, summer getaway that Aya, Napa, and Cyprus becomes their alternative to Ibiza or Goa. And this is where uh, they go to get away and dance to the garage music they like in a sunnier and uh, more summer pleasant environment. And this infrastructure meant that there was this strong economic substructure that enabled it to thrive and survive, that you had indie labels like Locked On, you had rave promoters, club managers, and DJ and MC agencies, uh, plus pirate radio stations that all had their little businesses going and had a network and were really strong. And, And that allowed the scene to continue innovating even after it had hit the top of the pop charts and prevented it from being kind of like, and we never did come up with a name for that whole era of groups like Soul to Soul that were, you know, and uh, Soul to Soul. I always want to say Ace of Base, but they were Swedish and not not fitting in. But you know, D Light, and there were there was sort of a wave of sound system DJs that kind of got lumped in as one hit wonders because they didn't have this kind of underground infrastructure earlier in the 90s they weren't quite rave music they weren't quite hip-hop and they could make it to the top of the pop charts but then they kind of kind of faded away that didn't happen so much with garage although it is um gonna fade but then he talks about this second golden age of pirate radio over 100 pirate stations in london and about 60 percent of them were playing garage as of the turn of the millennium Uh, people like lush fm flex fm whose owner decline um and MC's Sharky P and Hyperactive were a perfect picture of UK Garage's multiculturalism. But Steph tells me it's time to cue our last song before we can talk about that. This is Groove Chronicles Black Puppet from 1999. And why did you pick this one? I just thought we we want a little bit of a, a view into what what's kind of coming next. This is uh this is where where Speed Garage Two Step starts morphing into dubstep. Ooh, one step closer to bro step. So very exciting stuff. Groove Chronicles, Black Puppet. Groove Chronicles, Black Puppet. And as Ryan says, it's where two-step starts morphing into dubstep. And the funny thing about dubstep is this is one of these rare genres that's going to be underground first, 
then become a populist style later on. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Um, but pretty interesting stuff. And when I go back and listen to this early dubstep stuff, dubstep stuff, which I was blissfully oblivious to at the time, it doesn't sound anything like the bro step that I heard when I first heard the term, term dubstep. So, no, I mean, uh, I mean, I think the most important element to, to take away from all of this is I feel like uh, Speed Garage and UK Garage is so dance oriented and then two step kind of calms us down a little bit and then dubstep really chills us out. Like we're practically, you know, we're, 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 we're now just half a word away from being right back to dub where we started. Yeah, it, it's fascinating stuff, and it's definitely uh, stoners sitting there at the boards twiddling knobs kind of music. And not to diss it, but, you know, it's 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 thoughtful. You might even say the dread term intelligent. Would that be a fair? Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of the best stuff, uh, this, these weren't dance singles or anything like that. You know, Burial had these seminal albums that were that were key to the genre and uh, and just really impressive listening. So... But yeah. definitely, definitely nothing, nothing, definitely nothing that I would be interested in hearing maybe out on a raucous Friday night. <laughs> Not that yeah. there's anything wrong with that. Again, this is, you know, as an 18 year old, I used to tune out everything that that wouldn't work for me on a dance floor. And uh, God, I missed so much amazing music at the time and I kicked myself for it. But, you know, coming back to it around now in my 40s and uh, it's just like it's just like getting to experience everything all over again for the first time. Yeah, that's kind of the 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 trip I'm on because you know, I was I was in a heavy guitar rock band in in the early '90s, so I tuned out anything that wasn't directly relevant to what we were trying to do, and that's how musicians and DJs that are creating stuff do. That you got to focus, you got to have an aesthetic agenda. I like this, I don't like that, and and really go with that. But as listeners in the 21st century, it's so delightful to just skim across the surface of this stuff. And if, if something really strikes your fancy, you can dive in deep. So this is a unique moment in musical history that we're trying to make the most of. Um, but let's talk again, wrap it up with the discussion of this, this crew at Flex FM. And I also want to, before, also with the wrap up, I also want to touch on how, how the scene kind of fell apart at the end, the whole speed garage, UK garage thing. Absolutely. We will get to that. Let me quickly talk about this delightful picture of multiculturalism uh, that UK Garage was – that represented UK Garage, that you had this team. You had Decline, who was uh, the owner of the FM radio station, also a DJ. He was lanky, white, and scruffy. And then you had Hyperactive, who was Asian and neat. So forget these these stereotypes are all Reynolds, not me. But but he's describing specific people that he knew. And then Sharky uh, was Jamaican. So you you've got and I believe uh, my guess is that hyper hyperactive was South Asian, so of Pakistani or Indian descent, which is much more common uh, in England. Uh, you know, there's plenty of South Asians in, in the states. We don't want to diss any of my South Asian friends here, but there's a lot of 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 Pakistanis and and Indians in England, given the rapacious colonial empire of England. So that's going to happen. And this kind of comfortable mix of cultures uh, allowed their cheeky hip hop collage approach to go in and, you know, et cetera. Lots of cheese. They weren't afraid of cheese. They, they uh, decline had a hit, uh, I Don't Smoke, that went number 11 pop on East West. And he talks about how there's a backlash uh, to this stuff. And Oxide and Neutrino had their track Bound for to Reload that was a, a number one hit. East West Records, a major label, picked that up. 
And he says that created this instant generation gap and yet another DJ committee formed to stop it. We've seen this multiple times in this history. Those DJ committees never work. Does yeah, that tie it, into it, your... it, Yeah, it definitely ties in because there was a DJ committee to try and control the future of jungle drum and bass. They weren't happy with the ragged influences that were coming into to, to jungle music. And, uh, you know, jungle was starting to explode beyond what I think anybody expected it to. And there were massive raga jungle dance hall hits um, that were that that were just overloading all of the all of the events with 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 newcomers and with all of these these newcomers came a whole bunch of problems with violence and, and guns and gangsters and everything else like that. So they blamed it all on the raga and they formed a committee to to get back to proper drum and bass without all the MCs, without all the ragged jungle, without all of the, uh, you know, the, the gunshot samples and everything else like that. And uh, I don't know whether or not it was a result of, of this committee. I think it just kind of naturally happened on its own that the next big thing happened, and that was Speed Garage. You know, the, everybody followed the women along the Speed Garage, and Speed Garage ended up being the place where all of the quote-unquote troublemakers ended up. And all of a sudden, maybe you realize that the drum and bass committee guys weren't so wrong because Speed Garage was really put in its grave because there were too many shootings at, at some of the major clubs and all the clubs started getting shut down. And basically the police started going around and telling pubs, if you're running Speed Garage nights, we're just going to start investigating your licenses and stuff like that. And this is this is a classic uh, from my days in the rave scene, the police will come along. If you're doing something at a, at a at a at a licensed venue, they'll just be like, you know, you don't want your your you don't want your your liquor license to be looked at. You don't want your fire license to be like looked at, and they'll threaten all of those things. And all of a sudden, there's no more venues. You know, the way I always thought it would be was, you know, that that ideal uh, that idealism of the free market is if if there's a demand, somebody will be there to fill it. But it doesn't really take into account. Uh, you know, when the authorities are willing to to do whatever they can to destroy it. And I feel like, you know, uh, one of the one of the repetitive themes that we talk about in the, the underground or the rave scene is that, oh, when when the authorities want to come in and shut something down, it just makes kids want to do it more. And it just makes the whole scene. And it's like that. That is true. Yes, sometimes. But when the when the cops are competent at their jobs and they actually really want to shut something down, and 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 if there's actually shootings and crime and stuff like that happening, like at the wazoo, like there were, you know, uh, for for the scale of everything that was happening in the rave scene, there wasn't a lot of drug deaths. There wasn't as many as you would expect there to be. There wasn't as many shootings or stabbings or anything else like that. But apparently, at these speed garage events, man, it was there was some serious uh organized crime there was some serious violence and there was some there was a lot of issues with guns and uh, it all just got out of control and the cops came in and they they shut it down hard and that pretty much ended the golden age of, of uk garage yeah and that and that kind of onus and persecution by authorities has continued to dog the grime scene and various other uh scenes that have come up in england since then and you know it's so hard to parse this stuff out because i obviously want to condemn gangsterism and organized crime and street murders bad that's all bad against it and it does poison scenes and it does uh kill artists it, it's it's still you know killing mumble rappers to this day obviously we lost Tupac and Biggie to that kind of nonsense um so bad stuff and at the same time there's this racist 
authoritarian surveillance state nightmare that England was kind of on the cutting edge of, and it's only gotten worse in the 20 years since then. And I got to condemn that even more. I mean, you know? Yeah. And it's like, uh, you gotta, you gotta kind of check your sources when you're talking about this kind of stuff. I base, I base my knowledge of what was going on kind of based on uh, podcast interviews with Fabio and Groove Rider, where they were basically saying, you know, certain cities and certain parts of town and certain nightclubs and stuff like that, you just didn't go to. So if, if these guys are basically saying this is, this is a dangerous place, this is off limits. I'm thinking there's probably something to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you do have to parse your sources because there's so much spin coming out of the authorities. And as we've seen in these moral panics, you know, they'll take one death from ecstasy and turn that into this whole national uh, hysteria and write all these laws. And, and, you know, as we go from this optimism and this prosperous, prosperous era in the late nineties, apologies for the dental crown. <laughs> it's really making me slur and stammer. It'll be fixed next episode um, hopefully. But, uh, um, you know, we, we're having this this boom in the late 90s and everything's great and optimistic and there's some ominous undercurrents that are happening. And I hope this isn't a spoiler for anybody, but the 2000s are going to be full of bummers. And we'll start talking about that next time as Ryan Harkness and I return to continue our discussion of Energy Flash, a journey through dance, rave music and dance culture. And what's our next chapter here? What's What are we up to? Ooh, so we'll probably compress or skip his riff on DJ culture and remixology. I think there's a few interesting things, but we're going to get into the 21st century. And we'll probably combine his chapter on retro electro new wave, spelled N-U, and the 80s revival um, with his review of rave culture's second dec decade of the 21st century. So anyway, for Ryan Hartness, I'm Nate Wilcox. Thanks for listening. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to discuss developments in the dance scene in the early 2000s, including Electro Clash, Retro Electro, and the 80s Revival. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 